You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, what if we've all been bracing for a recession that never actually shows up? That's a question that's floating around more and more these days as the economy just keeps hanging in there. Despite the rapid rise in interest rates, a few bank failures, and all the dire predictions that came along with both of those. We'll get into it with a well-known economist at a major Wall Street bank. But first, Valdana, I've got a very strange question for you. I'm shocked. You're shocked? Yeah. I've never asked you a strange no. question. For you. Have you ever daydreamed about, like, being a princess or a queen? No. Or royalty? <laughs> you haven't? No. Oh, well, that's, that's a healthy outlook. I, yeah. I, it's not real. And they, like, didn't have bathrooms. There, well, there are real princesses. and Oh, that's true. Like, you, modern day. Do you think... Uh, the current princesses and princes? Prince Harry doesn't have a modern bathroom? He definitely does. But, like, <laughs> are they beloved by their people? You know? <laughs> it comes with a lot of baggage. All right. Well, that's a healthy attitude. Why are you asking? Well, it's uh, my craziest thing this week has to do with there's actually a market for royal titles, if you believe it or not. Wow. So I'll get I into I would buy that. one. I, you would. All right. I would be the highest bidder. Oh, as good. You know. We're going to find out how much <laughs> you, you, you're willing to pay. <laughs> Okay, I don't want to keep our guests waiting because, and I actually just told him this right before we started taping, I'm a huge fan of his. I've been a fan for years, and I'm so excited to like have him Like you got on posters on the wall and stuff? Yeah, kind or, of, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no not, not to that extreme. <laughs> it's Seth Carpenter. He's the Global Chief Economist at Morgan Stanley. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Well done. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. I am, I'm glad that this is audio only because I would have blushed. Given what you just said. Oh, I'm <laughs> blushing. Don't worry. He's also a a, uh, a former writer of the Princeton Dinky as well. I, I know. Right? Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. He got his PhD at Princeton. My, which my is... weird hobby is I love the Princeton Dinky. I don't know why, but I, I find it fascinating that there's a one car train that goes, what, a mile back and forth every day. And you can have your tall guy on it. Or what's it called? A tall guy? A tall boy. Tall boy. <laughs> tall boy. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even finish a tall boy in the time it takes. <laughs> no, to get you can't. <laughs> Okay, but Seth, you have a very decorated resume. So I'm hoping you could, we can just start out. You can tell us about uh, your background and then how you ended up at Morgan Stanley. Uh, how did I get to where I am? Uh, you started off noting that I have a, a PhD in economics, and I'm 
happy to say that my primary advisor was Ben Bernanke, who, when I was at Princeton, did not have a Nobel Prize, and now he does. So maybe I had something to do with that. I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that was actually a fantastic opportunity. And uh, I actually thought I was going to be an academic. Uh, my research was on monetary policy, but I went to teach for a couple of years at the College of William and Mary, and then the Fed called and said, "Are you interested in coming up to to give a to do an interview?" And the answer was yes. And they offered me a job, and I took it. And shocking news for anybody who's in their late twenties: Washington D.C. is a bit more interesting to live in than Williamsburg, Virginia. <laughs> so I ended up staying in Washington D.C. And I was at the Fed for 15 years. By the time I left, I was the deputy director of the Division of Monetary Affairs. Uh, got to work through the financial crisis, which you know is, was a terrible point in economic history. But now that it's in the rearview mirror, it sort of was fascinating part of my career to be at the Fed in the trenches, trying to work on both strategy for policy and then the nitty gritty, like all of the different lending programs the Fed did, and thinking about the Fed balance sheet. I was for a while the Fed's person in charge of the Fed's balance sheet, if you will. Um, so it was fascinating. But at some point, I needed a break. I went to the Treasury Department, ostensibly for just a one-year visit. But while I was there, I had the very good fortune of having President Obama nominate me to be Assistant Secretary for Financial Markets. So I, I resigned from the Fed and got to work at the Treasury Department. And I have to say that was a fantastic job. But I did that until 2016. And then I went to the private sector to financial markets, worked for a year at a hedge fund, worked for four years at a different bank. And now I'm happy to say I am the global chief economist here at Morgan Stanley, and I couldn't be happier. I guess you did have to buy a new wardrobe when you moved to Washington, though, Seth. You couldn't walk around in those colonial uniforms anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> Pinstripe suit with a tricorner hat. <laughs> <laughs> to get back to what I was saying in the introduction, um, you know, my impression is that you are sort of leaning into the soft landing camp these days, uh, thinking that perhaps fingers crossed, knock on wood and all that, we, we actually might be able to avoid a recession. Walk us through how you're thinking about that. You know, what's changed to, to make you a little bit less worried about recession? Absolutely. We've been, we've actually been in the soft landing camp for a while. There were definitely times when everyone in markets was throwing rocks and sticks at us and saying that we're crazy because it was clear we'd get a recession. And then the data for January and February came in that looked a lot better. And people were telling us that we were crazy, that we were still calling for a big slowdown. And now the world has shifted again. W what is our thinking? The first thing is that it seems hard to avoid the fact that the US economy is going to slow down. And part of the reason why that's hard to avoid is because that is absolutely categorically the Fed's objective, right? The reason they will keep hiking interest rates at least a bit more is because they want the economy to slow down a lot in order to have inflationary pressures abate. So the slowdown part should be pretty easy to get on board with. So what about the missing the recession part? Well, partly because the slowdown is the Fed's choice, at least having a chance to avoid a recession should also be the Fed's choice. And we think they're looking carefully at the data and asking, do we have enough evidence that things are slowing down a lot, but not yet crashing? Because that's what they're looking for in order to stop the hiking cycle. So we think the last hike is in May when there'll be more evidence of more of a slowdown, but not yet evidence that things have actually fallen off of a cliff. And then I think the last part of our of our thesis is usually what takes in the US to get a recession is some shock or something that causes the slowdown. So we've got that. But you also need an amplification mechanism. So 
the economy slows down and businesses lay off millions of workers and their lack of income causes a slump in spending, or you get a big credit crunch and everything uh, seizes up. Um, both of those are clearly possible, but we don't think they are imminent. For the labor side of things, the job market still seems pretty healthy. The unemployment rate is very low. And if you kind of look at how much employment do we have relative to the level of GDP, you'd come away with the conclusion that, boy, businesses are still a little shorthanded. But what that means is the economy can slow down and businesses don't have to do the same wave of firing that they've had to do in previous slowdowns. So that, that makes us feel a little bit better. And even though there's clearly tighter funding conditions for banks and banks are pulling back uh, on their lending, especially given what's happened in the, in the wake of uh, all of the banking turmoil, we got to remember that things were already slowing down. Loan growth was already slowing before we got these new sensational head headlines about the banking sector turmoil. And because we were sure the economy was going to be slowing down anyway, the demand for that borrowing is going to be following. And so we don't think any pullback by banks and their willingness to lend is going to be the thing that tips us over to recession. So not a super rosy outlook. We are looking for growth that's below a half a percent in real terms. So very, very close to zero. But importantly, we are not looking for uh, a, a full-blown recession where we have several months in a row of contraction. Okay. So Seth, you, you mentioned tighter funding conditions. And I'm wondering where else you are looking to see signs of that now that we've Obviously, we've had the bank turmoil been, what, a, a month since that happened. I, I know I was reading some notes from some of the big banks, and a couple of them actually mentioned Fastenal, some of the warnings from that company and that company being such a bellwether. So where else are you looking maybe for signs of tighter funding conditions? So we're trying to look as broadly and as deeply as we possibly can. Uh, you can look at things like delinquency rates and deterioration of credit quality on credit cards and, and that kind of lending to customers. But I, you know, close to home for a big chunk of my career, the Federal Reserve has their senior loan officer opinion survey. They have a survey of terms of business lending. And there they, they ask lots of banks, what's going on with your lending? And I think that's another really key uh, source of information about willingness to lend by creditors. Yes, yeah, Seth, I wonder, everybody was kind of bracing for, if not a credit crunch, definitely some kind of credit slowdown after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed. Was the emergency term lending facility that was introduced and the, you know, the, the discount window at the Fed opened wide, I mean, was that enough to basically prevent that type of contagion from that, that type of nervousness among banks to, to rein in lending, do you think, or is it, is it something else? So that's a great question, and it's really hard to know what the counterfactual would have been. But then when you start to look into the details, there wasn't, at least in the first week, that much that went through that new term lending facility, about $12 billion or so. A huge amount went to the FDIC's bridge banks. There's also a fair amount based on First Republic's own public disclosures that went directly there. And so you know, my initial reading, perhaps through some slightly rose-colored glasses, was that the situation based on that borrowing was more idiosyncratic than systemic. Now, there's still a lot of borrowing from many banks, and the amount going through that term facility has actually edged up a bit over time. It has not fallen. So we don't want to be complacent. But my initial read was that it was more idiosyncratic than systemic. And so as a result, yeah, I suspect that the, the lending was there, took care of some of the institutions that critically need it. 
others, as we know, or have been resolved or are being resolved. And and so, you know, my take really, though, is that we had a largely idiosyncratic problem against a backdrop of the whole system having facing higher funding costs. But that was very much the intent of the Fed by raising the federal funds rate 500 basis points. I, I do think there was mostly an idiosyncratic situation going on. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, the other uh, issue that's coming up with banks a lot these days, Seth, and admittedly, I'm kind of talking my book here a little bit. I've got a story in uh, our Business Week magazine about this this week, but it's basically the notion of deposit beta. When the Fed funds rate goes up to 5%, how quickly do banks jack up their rates that they pay on savings deposits, demand deposits, especially in reflection to how much the Fed funds rate has gone up? Because it's a really fascinating, I think, almost a historical whiplash that we've seen. You saw bank deposits just swell tremendously during the pandemic, uh, something like 20% in 2020, I I believe it was, and then another 10% in in 2021. Now they're starting to shrink, uh, albeit, you know, not by a ton. I think it was like a percent and a half last year. But, uh, you know, on an aggregate basis, bank deposits are shrinking. There's more competition possibly for deposits. A lot of banks are now paying above 4% on their savings rates, uh, their deposit rates. To me, that that creates a lot of questions, I think, about the financial system. You know, um, And warning here, I'm about to give you about a 10-part question, so uh, stand by. But you know, A, does that sort of deposit competition, that worriness about stickiness of deposits, have any effect on the supply of credit, do you think? And secondly, does it have any macro follow-up for the markets themselves. You know, I'm thinking if I'm getting, if I can get four, four and a half percent on my savings account at a bank, 
Um, am I going to be less willing to take risk in the stock market? That, that sort of thing. So I'm curious how you see that whole situation playing out, both from the, the credit side and any other uh, potential macro impact it might have. Absolutely. So fascinating topic, one that is absolutely critical. So let me take a step back and think about it in a, in a, in a historical sense. Every time we have an interest rate cycle, business cycle, and then the Fed's moving short-term rates up and down, you see an interesting and fairly familiar pattern. When, when the Fed cuts rates and market rates fall, deposit rates fall along with them, and then the Fed starts to raise interest rates and deposit rates kind of lag. And then over time, that deposit beta uh, as you noted, starts to starts to pick up. Uh, big plug to my colleague Betsy Grasek, who who runs equity research at Morgan Stanley for for financial institutions. She's been saying since the beginning of this hiking cycle that the deposit beta increase this time would be more dramatic than it has been in past cycles, and and that's been borne out as as you've said. I think there are a few things that are that are a little bit different this time than previous cycles, at least recent cycles. Uh, one is the speed with which the Fed increased interest rates. We had four 75 basis point rate increases this time compared to you know, the previous couple of hiking cycles. That's a really big departure in terms of speed and, and banks are, are, are having to, to follow up on it. Historically though, what, what do you see? You see the growth rate of deposits fall or even an outright decline in deposits because as market rates start to go up and people can invest in treasury bills, deposits start to look a little bit less attractive and and you see see that same pattern. So qualitatively, we're seeing the same thing. Quantitatively, the speed of the increase was much bigger. Key difference here is that the Fed has this reverse repo facility where they take in cash from investors and primarily money market mutual funds, and they're using that tool to help keep all market interest rates higher. That tool existed in the last hiking cycle, but that was a much more gradual hiking cycle. It did not exist in any other previous hiking cycle. And so what you can see are investors who might have otherwise had their cash in deposits at banks can now have their cash shifted over to a money market mutual fund. That money market mutual fund can put that cash at the Fed, and it's facilitating that very historical pattern of higher interest rates leading to slower deposit growth or even negative deposit growth. It's helping that process move along, but it's doing it even more effectively than historically, and again, against the backdrop of a much faster hiking cycle. So the first part of the question is absolutely yes, this, this shift in deposit matters. It's part of a normal hiking cycle, but it's just happening much more quickly and perhaps much more effectively than it has historically. What does it mean for other asset prices? I mean, again, usually when people talk about portfolio construction, they sort of think about what can you get on a risk-free asset? And then any other risky asset has to outperform in, expand, in, in expected value. And yeah, uh, deposits are paying more this time around. Money funds are paying more than before. T-bills are doing more than paying more than before. My colleagues in interest rate strategy here at Morgan Stanley had put out a piece as their outlook for 2023 that was called the year of yield. Cash, once again, is an actual asset class. It's not just sort of where you have your wealth because you can't make up your mind yet. It's a it's a legitimate asset class because T-bills are paying 5%. So yeah, the second part of your question, uh, I, I'll also answer yes to. I think this is absolutely an important development. It matters at a macro level. It matters at a financial market level. Uh, but it is ultimately, at the end of the day, just part of how monetary policy works. But boy, the details are a little bit different this time around. 
Seth, I'm also wondering if maybe there's a disinflationary aspect to this in that if I'm somebody who puts a bunch of money in a money market fund, I'd be less inclined to actually go out and then spend it. I wouldn't have it at the ready if I wanted to buy a brand new TV, for instance. I mean, I think that is possible. I think there's definitely the possibility that easier savings means less spending, and that makes a lot of sense. There's not always a lot of evidence in the empirical research, and it all comes down to sort of how do households weigh spending versus savings. But one thing that it clearly does is for anybody who is going to be borrowing in order to spend, the cost of funding is just going up. So we see this clearly in banks, their cost of funding is going up, making it harder for them to lend. Households that might want to borrow in order to buy a new car, their cost of borrowing is going up because any anyone who's borrowing at this point is going up. That for me is, is the traditionally stronger channel for monetary policy, uh, but it, it could work through the savings mechanism the way you said it as well. You know, Seth, you had mentioned those flashbacks to your days in Washington when uh, the debt ceiling first sort of reared its ugly head and became an issue. I think as we, you know, I, I guess we're in the extraordinary measures <laughs> phase of of the debt ceiling right now. And as we get closer and closer to sort of the drop dead date, you know, there's this assumption that it's brinkmanship, that some sort of deal will be cut at the 11th hour. But I got to say, you know, politics is way more bare knuckles uh, than I think it's ever been in my life. And I, I wonder if that is the wrong way to think about it this time. Do you think there is a bigger risk this this time of some actual default and some some serious, you know, financial risks to the whole system because of that this time? Absolutely. I do think that uh, the risks are bigger this time. And I think there are a few things that that figure into that calculus. At the end of the day, this is a standoff, a game theoretic setting between two sides in a negotiation. And that's, for me, part of how I think about it as an economist. But the things that are different now relative to, say, 2011 and 2013, and let's not forget both of those episodes came basically down to the wire and, and were, were a little bit, for me at least, nerve-wracking. But now you've got different leadership in the House of Representatives where there were you know, lots of rounds of voting to come up with uh, the speakership. And I think that probably changes a little bit how the calculation goes on that side. I think the other point that's very different now relative to 2011 or 2013 is that in the public domain – on the Fed's public website are the transcripts of two different uh, conference calls, one in 2013, one in 2011, where the FOMC discussed what would happen if we got to the point where the Treasury ran out of cash. And if you read that, you might conclude, I think wrongly from my personal perspective, but it would be easy to conclude that the Fed's got a plan and it's there's a way to finesse not defaulting on Treasury securities while avoiding paying on other government obligations. I'm not sure creating that potentially false sense of of comfort is a good thing to get get a, a quick and easy resolution to these sorts of things. So I, I do think the water has got more muddied because of the political circumstances, because of uh, the extra information in the public domain, and and you know I I worry. Maybe it's just because I'm always a congenital worrier, um, but we really do, in my opinion, need to see uh, hopefully a, a, a timely resolution one way or the other.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Seth, I also want to take us abroad because you're bullish on... China growth. And I'm wondering, first of all, what you're projecting in terms of China's economic uh, growth and then how that actually is helping hold up global growth numbers, uh, which maybe would be looking a little bit more anemic without um, some of the numbers that China's been posting recently. Sure. Uh, a great topic. We are here at Morgan Stanley uh, very uh, bullish on economic growth for Asia in general and China in particular. We've written down 5.7% growth for China this year, which is above the official growth target from Beijing of about 5%. The data that are coming in now uh, in terms of the rebound first, we got readings on things like mobility indexes. Now, more of the data are coming in. My take is they're coming in in line with that very uh, bullish outlook for what's going on with China. And so, you know, we are sticking with our view, 5.7% growth for this year, maybe even some risk to the upside. Uh, It will, however, require that as the year progresses, as spending continues to recover, that we get more and more people brought back into the labor force, more employment gains, especially among young young people. But we think that's likely to happen. And and in lots of ways, that's the thesis for, for our outlook is first reopening coming off of a really weak level. And then as economic activity continues, it has the standard virtuous cycle, if you will, of, of pulling people back to work. Now, the spillover to the rest of the world, though, I think is very interesting this time. People are used to looking at past cycles where China accelerated and it helped pull the whole global economy along. This time, well, it's going to be good, presumably, for the rest of Asia, especially the parts of Asia that will benefit from Chinese tourism. But we've got some research out there that suggests that the normal spillovers from Chinese economic growth to the rest of the world, if you were to say, okay, this year, close to three percentage point acceleration 
can we multiply that three percentage point acceleration by the same coefficient we would normally use in past cycles? And the answer, I think, is no. It's probably only about half as much. And that includes the spillovers to commodities. And the reason for that is most of the growth that we're seeing in China this year is likely to be domestic spending, as opposed to a lot of the growth being fueled by exports. So that's one difference. And second, a lot of it is going to be skewed towards services instead of towards physical goods. Now, to be clear, the housing market that had been imploding is not only stabilized, it's actually starting to recover. So there's, it's not as though this is a binary one zero kind of outcome. So we are getting a recovery in housing. We do think part of the fiscal policy stimulus will be through infrastructure. But boy, relative to historical patterns, a heavy skew towards spending on services. And that just means you're going to get less of a pull into China from the rest of the world than you would have in previous cycles. So we are bullish China. We're bullish Asia more generally. We think Asia outperforms, uh, but we don't think that China is going to end up being uh, the engine of growth for the global economy. We're looking at weak growth in the U.S. and in Europe this year. Wow. Seth Carpenter, global chief economist at Morgan Stanley. What a absolute pleasure to pick your brain like that. We really appreciate it. Can't let you go quite yet, though. We do have a attrition here on what goes up where we have to go over all the craziest things we've where seen. Where we torture our guests. We torture where the torture, let the torture commence. Yes. Yes. All right. I'm going to start for once. Oh, I'm going to okay. start. Go ahead. As I said, Veldana, I think you should buy a royal title. Okay. From the nation of Sealand. Have you ever heard of Sealand? No. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> So this is courtesy of a story in The Athletic, which is actually a uh, sports website, but one of the best stories. doesn't sound like it. Uh, (laughs) How how would you have ever figured? One of the best uh, feature stories I've read uh, about in a while. It's about the sovereign nation of Sealand, which sits six nautical miles off the coast of Suffolk, England. And basically what it was, in World War II, the Brits built a ocean fort. Basically, it looks like a big oil platform. It was called HM Fort Ruffs. And the idea was to have uh, sort of defenses out in the sea uh, to fight off the German warplanes as, as they came over. Some guy in 1967, a ham radio operator of all people named Patty Roy Bates, decided he was going to take over the fort and make it the sovereign nation of Sealand. And he pretty much got away with it. There, he's out in the international waters. There's not much Britain can do to to get it back from him. So we, he and his family have been living there ever since. They have a soccer team, believe it or not. The whole sovereign nation of Sealand is actually half the size of a soccer pitch. But the fascinating part is you can buy a royal title from Sealand. Baron, Baroness, Sir, Dame, Count. Countess. Can I put it on Duke, my resume if I Duke, buy it? Duke Duchess? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you bought and paid for it. So the question is, the lowest priced title, royal title, mind you, from the island of Sealand is Lord, Lord or Lady. So you could be Lady Vildana Hyrick of Sealand for a certain price. Now, the question is, what do you think it costs to be Lady Vildana of Sealand. I'm going to buy this, and then on next week's episode, I'm going to introduce myself as <laughs> Lady Vildana Hayek. Okay, I'm only bidding a thousand bucks on this. A, a thousand bucks, so yeah. in, so it's in British pounds, so that would, oh sorry, that would be out of like nine hundred, yeah. probably British pounds. Yeah, nine eighty like or something. I don't know. Seth, you're now a contestant on the game show we like to call the Price Is Precise. What do you think the going rate for the title of Lady <laughs> of Sealand is? 
All right, a thousand and one pounds. Thousand ones, you're going on the over, huh? Oh my gosh! You guys, I, the the uh, king of Sealand is going to be reaching out to both of you guys, I think, because he's willing to sell one for the low, low price of twenty four pounds ninety nine. Oh shoot! So you guys are. I overpaying. almost just cursed. I overpaid, and I thought I was, uh, but guess what? I beat Seth Carpenter in this game. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's huge. She's never going to let you hear the end of that, Seth. I don't need to be a lady anymore. The highest priced is Duke or Duchess. So for 1,000 pounds, you guys could be Duke and Duchess. They're, Duke, Duchess, lady. And 499 pounds. Wow. 99 pence. That's pretty good. I wish you hadn't gone first because I actually can't compete with that. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is actually from my sister, who I mentioned last week, has been sending me tons of crazy things now that she's a fan yeah. of the podcast. Yeah. So again, a shout out to Morella. And she sent me this article. It's about Apple having a savings account now. And the interest rate is 4.15%. I, it's amazing, right? Yeah. All right. That's Nuts. That made its way to my Business Week story, along with their partnering with Goldman Sachs. Goldman, yeah. And it sits on the wallet on your phone, which makes, I don't know if I want my entire savings sitting in my phone wallet. Yeah, because the subway machines might steal it from you when you swipe in. Yeah, or something. or something. Because yeah. that's how it works, right? <laughs> what do you think, Seth? Are you, are you willing to have your entire savings in your Apple wallet on your phone? Uh, I am not precisely because of my fear of what the uh, subway turnstiles might do. <laughs> They're known for stealing money. The good news is you get to ride for free for the rest of your life. The bad news is you're broke. But, it, you know, Seth, it does it does go to speak to this competition for deposits really heating up. I think it's, um, you know, so many of us had sort of written off savings accounts for so long as just, you know, uh, a piggy bank, not really a place to, to earn a yield. And, and the times really have changed. It's It's pretty fascinating to watch. It is a huge change now relative to where things have been for a while, but I like to tell some of the younger folks uh, in in the bank that I'm old enough to remember that there were even recessions when the federal funds rate didn't go down to zero. So it hasn't <laughs> had always been the case that savings accounts were useless until we're going back to normal as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Well, how about you, Seth? Do you see anything crazy uh, these days? <laughs> You remember, I'm the global chief economist, so I look around the world, and it looks like every corner of the world has something just a little bit crazy going on, <laughs> so uh, I don't think I can narrow it down. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a crazy world all around. It's a mad, 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 mad world, which well, you don't get that reference. To I do. TV. It's you a do? song. Is it a song? Uh, it might be, but it's a movie. A movie. It's an old okay. movie. Yeah. Great movie, by the way. <laughs> Well, Seth Carpenter, uh, such a uh, really an honor to talk to you and and hear your thoughts about everything. I hope we can uh, do it again someday soon. Oh my gosh, this was great! Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. What goes up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me, at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong, and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.